Now, Romans chapter 8 was an incredible passage of Scripture to move through together last week. And it closes the first section of this book. So tonight, beginning with chapter 9 and moving on through um, chapter 11, we are encountering a new phase, a new section of what uh, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through the Apostle Paul. And there is a dramatic change in the tone and uh, in the nature of what's being communicated between the 39th verse of chapter 8 and the very first verse of chapter 9. Let me back up to verse 38 in chapter 8 and uh, demonstrate this dramatic change. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can almost hear the fanfare build, you know, the timpani and the trumpet sounding. I mean, it's an incredible passage right there. Then he begins chapter 9 with these words, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Now what happened? I mean, <laughs> what, 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 you know, what did he do here? How did he get down off of that, that uh, great tremendous mountain of uh, praise and adoration for the fact that the Lord Jesus has given us this great salvation and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. How did he step down from that into a place of grief and sorrow? Well, it's very simple. Because though he can so confidently and joyfully and, and uh, um, you know, with praise declare the goodness of God towards his people in, the, in giving us of his grace so freely, he is always conscious of the fact that his own people, the Jewish people, by and large, for the most part, are outside of that grace by their own choice. Such a marvelous salvation as, as he's just described, so wonderful and grand that it is, is not being experienced by the people of his own kin. And so he's experiencing great sorrow and continual grief in his heart and he's going to go on to talk now about the Jewish people and where they stand in relationship to this grace and why. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul here says something that is almost uh, hard to believe. And that's why he has to st so strongly emphasize, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I really wish that if it were possible, I could be accursed, that they could know the joy, the freedom, the peace that I've just described. But I am grieved. I'm filled with sorrow because that's not possible. Now that's a, a statement that not very many people could make and make it honestly. I could not make that statement. I could not say, I wish, I wish there was a way 
that I could trade my salvation so that those 30,000 people in Pleasanton who don't know Christ could be saved. I couldn't say that, honestly. I could say it to try to impress you, but it wouldn't be true. I'm not ready to trade my salvation for anybody. Not that it's something that anybody in their right mind would want to trade. But Paul, the apostle, is so moved with compassion for his own people that, that he begins to say the kinds of things that only someone who has experienced the, the, um, the love of God so dramatically as he has, someone who was a murderer against Christ, someone who, who uh, as he says, was the chief of sinners. Only someone who has experienced the incredible awesomeness of the love of God. Only someone who, who has experienced what Paul has experienced could know how to say those kinds of words and mean it. Someone like Moses, who also was a murderer, whom God chose to lead his people out of bondage. Moses said similar words. When the people of Israel had um, built themselves a, a calf and began to worship it at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God was about to bring judgment upon them, Moses said, don't do it. If you're, if you're going to pass judgment on them, then take me too. And he stood in the, in the gap for them. Only someone who's experienced that kind of incredible um, deliverance and has been transformed so fully into, the, into uh, having um, the heart of God, only someone like that could, could say those kinds of words. And yet... Paul speaks them and speaks them honestly, though he knows it is not possible. He says, the Israelites are the ones to whom pertain the adoption. It was to um, the nation of Israel that God said, you're my, you're my son. He speaks of the children of Israel as his own, his children. To them, is, uh, pertains the adoption to them was granted the glory of God the presence of God on display like no other people they had the cloud of uh, you know the pillar of fire by night and the cloud of glory by day that accompanied them through their journeys in the wilderness they had the presence of God manifest in a tangible form in the Holy of Holies to them was granted the glory of God like no other people. To them pertain the covenants, God's promises to the patriarchs to, uh, to bring forth a seed from them that would cover the whole earth. And through that seed would come the Redeemer, the covenants. Uh, to them pertain the giving of the law. To them the service of God. They're the only people that ever received an authorized form of of worship. To them pertain the promises. To them are the fathers, the patriarchs, 
to whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, verse 5, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God I am. I mean, amen. I am. But it is not the word of God, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, he quotes. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, he says, with this great compassion and, and moving from the depths of his spirit, I wish that there was a way that I could be called a curse, that they might know Christ. But he says it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not that we need to despair that God, that there are that uh, the the Israel people as a whole are doomed in despair. I mean, are doomed, and we need to despair for them because not all who are of the flesh related to Israel are Israel. And he goes on there for several verses to make the point that not everyone who is born a Jew is a Jew truly. For he goes on to build a case that says that way back in the beginning of the covenant with Abraham, there was a distinction made between the children of promise and the children of the flesh. God had promised Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And in your son, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Through his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So Abraham looked at himself and he says, Well, I'm an old man. My wife's an old woman. This isn't going to happen unless I get in and do something about it. And so by the works of his flesh, he gave birth to a son, Ishmael, not of his wife. Now, the Lord never acknowledged Ishmael as a legitimate son. When he talks about Isaac to Abraham later, after Isaac is born, he says, get Isaac your only son. Now Abraham <clears throat> was the father of both of these boys, Ishmael and Isaac. But only Isaac was the result of God's promise. And he says that there, so what he's saying is that there's many people who claim to be of Israel, sons of Jacob, that are not truly, for they are not sons, daughters, according to promise. They are attempting to have relationship with God merely by fleshly means, by pedigree. Remember when the Pharisees, or uh, the Jews, came to Jesus and they were bragging about the fact that they were sons of Abraham? And Jesus says, well, that's no big deal. God could raise up sons to Abraham out of the rocks. 
You know, that's nothing. God is concerned about what's going on inside of the heart of man. They, these Jewish people were, were smug in thinking that just because they had the circumcision, which we've already talked about in previous chapters, just because they had the law, just because they had the big nose, that they were okay. And Paul is very clearly saying here, that it's not by the works of the flesh. It's not because you can produce some kind of pedigree that says you are related to Abraham that scores points with God. It's the fact that you have a relationship, a right relationship with him based on his ability to justify you. And that's what all of these chapters have led up to. So he's not saying something new. If you followed him along, uh, through, through this course of study then you know what he's talking about and these Jewish people that he's addressing now know what he's saying then he brings up this point about uh, uh, Rebekah's sons by Isaac Jacob and Esau and how there was a distinction made though they were both sons of Isaac both sons of or grandsons of Abraham God chose one and not the other even before any deeds had been done no deeds had been done they were just brand new little babies it says the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil God chose them chose one and not the other it says the older shall serve the younger as it is written, verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now he uses this illustration to point up what he's already saying, that not all who, name, who, who call themselves Israelites are Israel. He says that here you got two sons, Jacob and Esau, both from the line of Abraham through Isaac, the line of promise, and yet one is chosen and not the other. Uh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now that's pretty strong terminology and when we get to that verse of scripture and to this passage in particular we tend to try to want someone to tell us that it's okay to soften that word hated. But you can't. And there's some things that we need to talk about now about election because that's what he says. He says in verse 11 that this was done uh, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And then he says, not of works, but of him who calls. Because Paul is trying to make the point now, again, that our standing before God is not based on what we ha can do, who we are, or what, what we have to offer. It's purely our standing, our right standing before God is purely on the basis of grace purely on the basis of his gift to us. Jacob and Esau had done nothing, good or bad, but on the basis of his sovereignty, God said, uh, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated. There was a choosing, an election that took place that had absolutely nothing to do with works. Nothing whatsoever. There's three things we want to talk about. First of all is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. That means that he doesn't answer to anybody. 
He doesn't have to consult me. He doesn't have to consult the Pope. He doesn't have to consult Pat Robertson about what he's going to do. God is God. He is sovereign. He can do anything he darn well pleases. And so if God says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated, that's okay. He's sovereign. Now the next thing we have to talk about is our negative response to, to that. Okay? Our negative response is, how can he do that? That's not fair. But you know, the minute you say that, the minute you call into question God's fairness, you place yourself above Him. What you're saying is, my morality is better than God's. I'm more fair than God's, because I wouldn't do that. You can't. You can't call into question acts of God's sovereignty. He does what he does because he does it. Now the next thing we have to talk about is why did God do it? God, it's so, if, that's what, if that's what you're doing, that's fine. You're God. But why? Let's go on and talk about that. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Notice this. He says, in both of those statements, he's talking about showing mercy and compassion. He doesn't say, he doesn't set mercy and judgment against each other. He doesn't say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will judge whom I will judge. He doesn't say that. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, the acts of God are merciful. Follow. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Again, it's not because you want to do good things. It's not because you even do them, but because God shows mercy. Now remember that there isn't a man, a woman, boy, or girl on this planet that deserves diddly squat from God. We all deserve the wrath of God. So when God says to uh, of Esau, Esau I have hated, that's nothing new. That's what we all deserve. We get upset because of that strong terminology there in regards to Esau. And yet the Bible plainly says, says that every one of us deserves the wrath and judgment of God. But when you begin to think now about the great mercy that was displayed in the fact that God chose Jacob and said, Jacob, I have loved, it puts it in a completely different light. Because it's not that God has has done something really awful and wicked to Esau. He didn't do anything to Esau. But he showed mercy and compassion to Jacob. 
We're not done yet, so hold on. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Even for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. He's talking about how Pharaoh's heart was hardened to not let the people go. And it says that he's quoting from the Old Testament. And it says that Pharaoh was raised up for the very purpose that God might display his power. And then it goes on and it says that whomever God uh, wills, he hardens. Now the word harden um, is better translated make firm. And this is going to help us here. Because what God did in, for, in Pharaoh's heart was not cause Pharaoh to do something other than what Pharaoh had a heart to do. God made firm, allowed to be solidified, allowed Herod, or Pharaoh to do what was in his heart to do. Pharaoh had a dispensation, or a... Boy, I cannot say the right words this evening. A disposition to uh, be to not obey, to not cooperate with God, and all God did was say, "Okay, if that's the way you want to be, have at it." He made firm a decision that Pharaoh had already made. But in in <clears throat> let's see, where were we? Oh, nineteen. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? And what he's saying is, is how he's anticipating the question, well, if God, you know, just picks and chooses according to his sovereignty, if God says, that guy uh, will make him a, a bad guy, and this guy over here will make him a good guy, and, you know, this guy here will harden his heart, and this one over here will, will make him... Uh, a son of God, you know. If God is just picking and choosing and so forth, uh, then how can God find fault in me? If he has predetermined that I'm going to be a bad guy, and if he's hardened my heart so that he can display his power and so forth, then aren't I just doing the will of God? And how can he get mad at me? How can he hold me responsible? How can he find fault in me if I'm just doing what he's elected me to do? That's the question he's anticipating. And his response is this. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath pre prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not of the Jews only but also of the Gentiles as he <coughs> says also in Hosea I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is not beloved and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work on the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have, become, we have, we would have been made like Gomorrah. 
<clears throat> if God is predetermining who the bad guys and who the good guys are going to be, then how come the good guys get blamed for being... I mean, how come the bad guys get blamed for being bad guys if they're just doing the will of God? That's the question. And Paul's response is, wait a minute. How can you question your maker? Back to the sovereignty thing. How can we set ourselves up as greater than God and say, God, you're, you're not fair. Doesn't he have the right to take a hunk of clay, chop it in two, make one vessel to uh, be a, a beautiful vase for flowers and another uh, a, a slop trough? Doesn't he have that uh, uh, sovereignty? Can't he take of the same dust and make a pharaoh and a Moses? Can't he do that? Isn't he God? Isn't he sovereign? Yes, he is. And we have no right to question. Absolutely no right to question whatsoever. But I want us to take a look at the verses of Scripture that pertain most specifically to this business of election and predestination. There's three of them. Let's look at them because the Lord has not left us just to be under the thumb of His sovereignty. He has disclosed to us His heart in all of this too. But before... See, the reason I'm, I'm putting you through this pain and suffering here is because we have no right to question Him. God doesn't have to answer to us. He doesn't have to give us any answer whatsoever. And there is this idea in the church that, you know, God better explain himself on this predestination stuff because I'm not comfortable with it. Well, if you're not comfortable with God's plans and his purposes, you might as well check out now because God is sovereign. He does what he wills. And his way is right and just. Just get comfortable with that. If God does it, it's the right thing to do. I don't understand it. But if God does it, it's the right thing to do. The church has got to come to that realization that God is sovereign and what he chooses is the right thing. So that we're not always questioning him. So we're not always keeping him at arm's length. God, you show me what the end result is going to be first. And if it looks good to me, then I'll trust you. See? We're, we hold God in a little bit of a tentative kind of a relationship because we don't fully trust Him. We're afraid He's going to do something like this that we don't understand, that we don't agree with. And we want to be able to say, well, no, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. But see, either we're committed to Him as God who is just and true and loving, or we're not. We are not God's judge. We do not get to stand and say, well, Lord, I think you made a mistake on that. That's not our prerogative. And the kind of faith that the Scripture is calling from us is the kind that says, God, okay, whatever you say is right and true, and I'll, I believe you, and I'll obey you. I'll not question you. The reason we have trouble with that is because on earth, all of the trust relationships we have are fair at best. And every once in a while you'll run into a Jim Jones situation where people have put their trust in a man and he has totally blown it out of his ears. And so we tend to hold God a little bit of a, at a distance, you know. But the scripture is calling for, forth from us the kind of faith that says, God, if you, like, like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. 
God, if you, whatever you decide to do with me, if for some reason you decide to just have a Mack truck run over me, that's fine. Because I know that whatever you decide is right. Don't make sense to me, and I'm looking forward to that. But if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Because I trust you. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So I'm wanting you to squirm a little bit and to deal with the fact that you've got to, you've got to trust God. Trust him completely. But he's not left us without a description of his heart in all of this. And let's look um, back up one page or two to Romans chapter 8. And uh, let's ver look at verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now turn over to Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now we want to look over at 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now all of these places talk about predestination, election with glowing terms. Nothing but praise for the fact that God has chosen me or chosen us. It's not a negative thing at all. And yet you bring up the terms election and, and uh, predestination and so forth, and most Christians backpedal. They cringe, you know. God, he'd do that? But it's not a negative at all. It's a very positive thing. And we touched on this some last week. For the implications are that God did not just let us go on to hell which we deserved. He did not just let us go on as a race in judgment, in separation from Him. But He reached out and He elected me. 
He reached out and he predetermined that I'd be his son. He called me out and snatched me from the grip of hell and caused me to be a child of God. When we're talking about predestination and election, we're talking about something glorious. That God who had, he had no reason at all to do it. Nothing in me deserved it. But he yanked me out of my sin and set me on a, on a rock, Christ Jesus. Jacob and Esau had done nothing. Jacob had done nothing to deserve God's uh, blessing, his calling, his election. But God in his mercy, in his compassion, laid hold on Jacob. But another thing that we see in all three of these passages is that God calls according to his foreknowledge. Now, foreknowledge is kind of like hindsight in a way, in that you can look back on things that have happened to you, and you can see them clearly. You can see what's happened and how history progressed and how you made this move and that move and where it's brought you to, but you don't have the power to go back and change it. You just observe it. Well, God's foreknowledge is like that in a way, in that God can look ahead and he can see what's going to happen. And though he could, he chooses not to change it because he's given man a free will. But he looks ahead and he sees what is to be and according to his foreknowledge, he is able to lay hold on those who he knows because he sees are going to, be able, are going to have a heart for him, who are going to turn to him. So predestination has more to do with God lovingly reaching out and laying hold on those who in his foreknowledge he saw a tenderness towards God, a responsive heart towards him, and, and organizing every effort to bring me into his kingdom. Rather than looking at somebody and saying, I don't like you, go to hell. You know, that's not what predestination is all about. And though there were these two babies who were innocent of anything, good or bad, God in his foreknowledge could see the kind of heart that would develop in those two boys as they became men. And in his foreknowledge he knew that Jacob, even though that guy was a hard nut to crack, would follow after the Lord. And so he chose him and he looked ahead and he saw that Esau would reject him. Would be so into his own uh, abilities and whatnot that he would turn from God and God said, Him I do not choose. It has nothing to do with their choice. Their choice remains. But God looking ahead to see what that choice will be knows what the end is going to be from the beginning and organizes every aspect of his power to capture me. To be sure, to ensure that what's in my heart is actually what happens. You know, um, there are those who say, well, if God, you know, elects and predestines, then why bother witnessing? I mean, why doesn't God just roll out a scroll and show me, you know, who, who is going to be saved? And I'll, I'll just go knock on those doors, you know. 
Why bother with, if God already knows who's going to, you know, reject him, why do I have to go around wasting my time with all those people who turn me down? Well, the fact is that God wants every man to have the opportunity to come to him. As I said before, God's foreknowledge has more to do with looking ahead and seeing what will be rather than determining in advance what will be. And the heart of God is that none should perish. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. God has his hands extended to every man. Every man. And so it is that he has commanded us to go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. So when you address someone uh, that you meet on the street or on the job and tell them the good news about Jesus Christ, you don't have to say, you don't have to add on to it, and you, you can be saved if you're one of the chosen. <laughs> you don't have to say that. You can confidently proclaim to every man that if they will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith, they are called. <laughs> they are elected. There are some people that say, well, I'm saved, but am I elected? <coughs> you know, I mean, I prayed the sinner's prayer, but what if I'm not on the list? That's foolishness. It's a warped idea of who God is. God has his hands extended to every man. He's opened the door to his, to his family, to all who, who will receive but the thing about predestination and the election is that it's, it's incredible news to those of us who have responded by, by faith in Jesus Christ to know that God chose me. I mean, it wasn't a mistake, you know. I mean, God chose me. There's a story that's been told to illustrate this that I like. I've probably used it before, but of a man who comes to the gates of heaven and unloads his burden there and looks up and sees on the archway above the gates whosoever will may come. Leaves his burden there, walks through those gates and on his way in looks back over his shoulder and say, it says on the other side of that gate, chosen before the foundations of the world. Now we don't have to understand that. We just have to rejoice in it. God is sovereign. I don't, he's the, I don't judge him. He does what he wants to do, but he has let me know some of the reasons or some of the ways in which election and predestination work. And I thank him for that. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. My choosing, my calling has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a Jew or a Gentile, has nothing to do with the fact that I'm circumcised or uncircumcised, has nothing to do with the fact that I'm good or bad. It has to do with God's calling, has to do with God's grace, His gift, free gift. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, I'm in the wrong place. Verse 30. What shall we say then? Verse 30. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. See, I got going on that chapter 8 again. I could do that all day and all night. 
start reading that stuff, you know. Verse 30, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumble at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The Jews are having trouble getting past the stumbling stone of Jesus Christ and that's why Paul's heart grieves for them. That's why he wishes that there was a way, that there was some way that he could open their eyes to the gospel because they're tripping over the fact that this salvation is a free gift. The Gentiles have done nothing to try to keep the law and God is declaring them righteous. And the Jews are working their fannies off trying to keep the law and big God is declaring them unrighteous. It's because of the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ. And, uh, but he says that all of us who believe on him will not be put to shame. In other words, we will not uh, experience uh, separation from God. We will not experience the wrath of God, the judgment of God, because we have put our faith in Christ Jesus.